Last week, I tried to, first of all, summarise the sorts of topics I will be considering in these lectures, and then gave a summary account of some of the precedents to this enterprise and the implications that that body of work poses for someone like me writing about and across, perhaps one could say, the life of a single person from rural Africa. Um, I should say that as of, I think, Friday last week, the sound recording of the first lecture is available on the net um, for if anybody is interested. Um, this week, uh, I'm going to move from the general to the specific, and in fact the remaining lectures are going to concentrate on the ethnography and different aspects of the ethnography. One of my purposes in these lectures is to use Deco's life as a synecdoche for the history of the, so the village of Sommier. So, as well as beginning to talk about Deco's life, I have to provide an initial summary, um, a summary introduction to the village. And I hope that then, in the course of the lectures that remain, both will be fleshed out, both Deco's life and more about the village. Part of that fleshing out requires me to describe aspects of her mundane life, since I assume that the, the audience here will not be familiar with everyday life in rural Africa. Their very familiarity, however, is why Dico and Sondre in their conversations did not deem it mention, uh, worthy of mention in their conversations with each other. This is perhaps to parallel the case of Kamara Ley, who wrote his later book, The Radiance of the King, while in exile in Paris. Working from memory, he evoked the sense, the sounds, the textures of being in Africa, which in his early books he didn't feel needed mention. Dico Madeleine, sitting there in the village of Somi in 1993, chatting to Sondwe, has no such need, had no such need. Only I working long after the recordings were made, share some of Ley's urge to evoke the things for which Deco felt no need to mention since they were all around her. So, let me now try and summarise, give you a summary introduction to the village itself. Somi or Somie, it's written with an E acute but pronounced by the locals as Somi, um, is a small village it's a population of, well, the village centre has a population of just over 600 in 1995. The canton, the area, including the village centre and the, the, the um, hamlets, um, is just a, a hair short of 2,000. And this, of course, causes all sorts of problems when people give population figures. Um, it's somewhere between the two. So the village lies at the end of a side road of a side road, on the Tikar Plain in Adamawa province in Cameroon. Culturally, the people who live on the Tikar Plain have more ties to those who live in the south than to those who live in the north. Yet, the fact of being included at a formal administrative level in Adamawa province means that they continue to be considered along with groups living to the north. They are right at the south and southern edge of Adamawa province. A relatively recent example of this, the effects of this, was the distribution of re relief funds, um, which were given to the Cameroon national, national state to compensate for the collapse in coffee prices early in the 1990s. When these funds were allocated by the government, none went to Adamawa province because no coffee is grown in Adamawa. Within Cameroon, Adamawa province is thought of by, um, sometimes by those responsible in, um, for its administration, as well as by those in the capital city, as being economically based on pastoralism and subsistence agriculture. The problem is 
that it is correct that no coffee is grown in Adamawa except for the bit of the Tikar Plain which is in Adamawa province, which is l'arrondissement de Bankim, in which Somi is found. So, the village chief acts as an intermediary between the village and the national authorities, settling disputes and cases heard with elder men who one can term notables, notables. Uh, the institution of chief among the Mambilla was documented by Farnham Rayfish in 1953, working on the Nigerian side of the border, and he documented it as mainly being a religious office, but when politically being rather weak. As political office, it was a classical case of creation by colonial administrators who assumed that there were chiefs and therefore created and institutionalised them. It's somewhat reminiscent of the Igbo um, uh, warrant chiefs as described by Afigbo. In Somi, the chiefship has been strengthened by comparison to its earlier form on the Nigerian side of the border. This has occurred through contact with the neighbouring group of Tikar people who have a centralised polity as described, for example, by David Price. Um, however, the social system on both sides of the border is um, recognisably Mambilla. It's much more closely related. The Somi social system is much more closely related to that prevailing in the Nigerian villages than, for example, the Cameroonian Tikar villages. Kinship remains paramount in organising the patterns of everyday life, but I should stress that descent is not of major importance. Mambilla do not use lineages as the basis of social organisation. At the beginning of the 20th century, the population were subsistence farmers relying on sorghum, cocoa yams and groundnuts. By the end of the century, as well as, well as continuing to grow these crops, they had added maize, mainly replacing sorghum, and started to grow maize and groundnuts as cash crops, as well as for subsistence. And then, since the late 1950s, they've been growing coffee as a cash crop, as I already hinted. Through this, they became economically attached to the world market at about the same time that Cameroon became independent. So economic and political change paralleled one another they became more closely connected with the nation-state. The escarpment of the Adamawa Plateau, which separates Somi from Mayadali, forms an ecological and cultural frontier. On the Tikar Plain, a largely Christianised population grow coffee and groundnuts as cash crops, whereas nearby on the Adamawa Plateau proper, semi-nomadic pastoralism is widespread, and the main religious affiliation is Islam. The sedentary farmers who are up on the Adamawa Plateau also now grow maize. And this has been, um, the switch from sorghum to maize up there has been attributed to the effect of having to coexist with um, cows. Sorghum requires longer fallow periods and the cattle destroy the fallow crops. So that's part of the background, some of the context within which Deco has lived her life. It's easy when writing a life, when talking about someone, to concentrate on the exceptional and the extreme, the wonder, wondrous and the peculiar. All this tends to drive out the mundane, the solid foundations on which everyday life is practised, um, everyday life is based, and on which all discussion of the extraordinary is predicated. So then it should be remembered that even when Diko was the first wife of Chief Konaka. She was first and foremost a farmer, mother to her children and an occasional potter. When I got to know her in the late 1980s, she was still farming and cooking for herself, although her children had long left home. And having no easy access to clay, she had not potted for years. She often had a grandchild or a great-grandchild in her house to help with her chores, such as fetching water from the well, of which I'll talk more about in the final lecture. The scope of her farming had diminished by that time from the large fields 
that she and her co-wives had farmed when she was the first wife of the chief, but as well as the small um, garden plot she farmed herself, which was quite near her house, she still had fields which she paid some Nigerian immigrants to farm, as well as a coffee field. And um, in January 1991, I wrote a field note which said, Deco back tired, she's been clearing her coffee field ready for picking. She complains that she has no money to employ someone to do it this year. Um, Menandi, her oldest surviving son, has now taken charge of these fields. And I note that the work for the coffee fields takes place in the dry season, which is also the time when pottery was undertaken. Uh, and uh, this used to take place um, following the sorghum harvest, of which we'll talk more below. She made cooking pots and occasionally large storage jars. She made this, the jars in her house, although these are... Um, think about 20 years old at least. Um, let me just quickly show you first her house, then some pots. Oh, that's not too bad. Those pots are about, these are the water, big water jars and they're about three feet a meter high. Incidentally, in the same, it's quite a nice little wall painting of a, uh, of a water jar. And this is also from her house. I'm sure she didn't do the drawing. I would guess from that that it was done by one of her great-grandsons called Adama. Um, oh, yeah, and then one more photograph from inside her house, which is just to show some traditional grindstones. These were the only way of grinding grain. Um, now people use pestles, wooden pestles as well. Um, and not so it's no, it used to be the case that every woman had several of these. Now they are relatively uncommon. So this is kind of evidence of her being, well, both old and a traditionalist. Um, I now want to move to talk about marriage, about her marriage and marriage in general. Husbands, most Mambilla women would admit, do have their uses. But these are fairly limited and they can be, often be replaced in some form or other. So widowhood or divorce may or may not be followed by remarriage. There's less pressure to marry now than there was in the mid-20th century. But as long as a woman has had some children, then remarriage, if not marriage itself, can be and could be resisted or postponed, sometimes indefinitely. That said, many old women see themselves through the lens of their children, and those children are their main achievement, their life's work, as it were. I now want to consider... The sec a section of her conversation with Sandwe, which followed him asking how she had met and married Konaka, her first husband. Before that, I need to consider um, some of the different forms of Manbella marriage. This is going to rely on Farnham Rayfish's reconstruction, which was based, as I said, on field research on the Nigerian side of the border in 1953. I need to stress the dates because even in 53, he was already reconstructing. He was already doing a work of history. According to Rayfish, in the, and so this means, sorry, that the period that he was reconstructing is just the period when Vico was getting married. And I'll come back to that. At that point, there were two main forms of Mambella marriage. The important difference between them being the different rules for the affiliation of children resulting from those different kinds of marriage. The, the system, the situation, is similar to that described for the TIV in Bohannon's classic paper about modes and spheres of exchange. The most prestigious form of marriage was exchange marriage, 
in which two men, men from two different descent groups, Memin, exchanged sisters, either real or classificatory. The other form of marriage was a bride wealth or bride service marriage in which a bride's kin group was compensated for the loss of their daughter by wealth in the form of iron hose and palm oil or labour by um, the groom and his friends and his kin. Note that since Memin membership is determined by the kind of marriage undertaken, it cannot be properly characterised as either patrilineal or matrilineal. So, for example, the genealogies that Rafish gave made it clear that the different routes to Memin membership were used by different individuals. The child of a stable exchange marriage would belong to their father's Memin, but a child of an exchange marriage which ended in divorce would belong to her mother's Memin, as also was the rule for, exchange, uh, for bride wealth marriage. This has an intriguing consequence that a child's affiliation remained uncertain until a parent died, thus finalising the stability of an, of an exchange marriage in effect by ending it. The wealth items used in bride wealth marriage are intriguing for a variety of reasons. The main and continuing item were iron hoe blades, of which are of particular interest since they are not made locally. But before I talk about these, I want to make some mention of Bridewell sticks. These were painted half logs, which were placed either side of the doorposts of a prospective bride's house following the successful completion of the early stages of betrothal. Sadly, we have no evidence as to whether these were concerned with a Bridewell or an exchange marriage. There is not much to say about these because although photographed by the early missionaries Paul Gebauer, Gilbert Schneider, as well as by the anthropologist Farnham Rayfish, there's little documentation about how they were used. And um, significantly, there's no mention of them in Rayfish's field notes, although this is actually one of his photographs. Schneider was the first missionary to be resident on the Mambilla Plateau, establishing the mission station at Wawa in 1947. Wawa is the village where Rayfish worked subsequently. Schneider recorded the only documentation of the use of these, um, which is now held in the uh, Milwaukee Public Museum archives. His account is as follows. The prospective groom worked prominently in the fields of his in-laws, gave small presents to the girl in question and to her parents. The logs were prepared after the bride's mother accepted a spear which the groom stuck in the, in the ground outside her house. And I think this is what Deco calls telep, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Taking it, taking this spear, signalled acceptance of the match, and the two parties were thenceforth properly engaged. It marked the move from intent over the long term to a serious and immediate plan to get married. The groom then cut a, a log about two metres long, split it down the middle, removed the bark. Working with a male partner, the curved surfaces of the two pieces were then painted, as you see here. At a later stage, possibly when they were cohabiting, the bride's mother could use the logs for firewood. Because of this, none have survived nor were collected. Schneider reports that his suggestion that some be made specially for his collection met with a vehement refusal. And although Rayfish photographed examples, no other documentation. And I've never seen them. So this, is seem, this seems to be something that has gone. Um, right, I want to say then something about the hose. As agriculturalists, Manvilla use iron hose for their everyday farming. These come through trade from the iron being smelted in the grass fields. Um, there is some evidence that the, the grass fields, remember, are to the west and to the south. There is some evidence for smelting also taking place to the east and the north. The nearest centre, however, is the Infumti village of Kwaja, whose smiths were documented by MDW Jeffries, Gilbert Schneider, and people such as Ian Fowler, um, who is known to many of you. Um, 
let me show you some Bridewell shovels. That's not too bad. Um, as well as hose being made for farming, which is an example of which is the one on the left, and in case you can't see it, here's the real thing. Um, that is significantly different from the Bridewell shovel on the right. It's twice as long. This is a photograph from a, um, an online collection, if I can find my mouse. Here it is. I'll just scroll down a little bit for you. Um, I have collected an example which is in the Cambridge Anthropology Museum and they're about that long. These are, they're either called shovels or they're called hoes. They have this idiosyncratic shape. This is actually an Mfumte example, so almost certainly comes from Quadja. Um, and they've been made as wealth items. So again, it's very reminiscent of the TIF system. And I think that Mambilla blacksmiths, the Mambilla did have smiths, although they didn't do smelting, could have refashioned these Bridewell hoes into actual working hoes on occasion, thus transforming from the, between the different spheres. They would have got hold of either form of the metal through trade, mainly for um, with palm oil, palm wine, um, and conceivably some cola nuts, which, because there was a long-distance trade route going through the Mambilla Plateau, um, through, via which they might have got access to some uh, cola nuts, although these are not grown on the plateau itself, nor down on the Tikar Plain. So, those are some of the items which Deco refers to. I now want to move on to talk about her account of marriage. The puzzle in her account is that she was speaking in generalities. She was talking about how bride service works, yet her account was elicited by a specific question of how she and Konaka, her first husband, themselves married. And one of the intriguing things about her account, for me, is that as a general statement, it makes no mention of sister exchange, which, as far as I can tell, was current when she was marrying in the mid-twenties. This poses a dilemma. Granted, it's being documented, how do we interpret her statements? Are they general? Or are they, although couched in a general ma manner, was she talking more specifically than she appears to be on the face of it? Of course, the beauty of writing this in the village, as I first drafted this, where I first drafted this a year ago, and since she was still alive then, I could go and ask her, as I duly did. And what she said was that, yes, of course she knew about sister exchange, but that was practiced over there by these other Manvilla villages, not the villages where she came from. And she comes from halfway between Somi proper and Wawa, where um, Rayfish worked. Where in, so in, in these Manvilla villages, there was only ever... Um, bride, bride wealth and bride service. Now, if Richard Farden's regional reconstruction is correct, then the likelihood that is that what she's reporting itself was of relatively recent origin. According to Farden, there, this dual system of both exchange and bride wealth was spread throughout the region. So if a few villages had abandoned it as many others um, have now, that was probably late 19th century and not much earlier. Um, it seems to me that what happened as the Mambilla moved down onto the Tikar Plain, onto the foothills of the Tikar Plain, and began to adopt some features 
such as the, the strengthened chiefship from the Tikar, and modi modified, uh, they, they, they modified other cultural practices. And among those, they will have lost the system of double descent and exchange marriage that went with it. Um, so, let me now give you a summary of a marriage negotiation. You start with exchanges of gifts. You have Telep, the betrothal ceremony, which I'll mention in a little bit. Then annual labour in fields by the prospective groom and his kin. And this is accompanied by gifts of oil, palm oil, spears and chickens. Then the shift of residency, the bride moves in um, to her husband's house and this is accompanied by the payment of some of the bride wealth hose. And then there, is, there are more gifts, oil, palm oil, baskets, chickens, some camwood, powdered red powder, um, which is washed on the bride and she is displayed when uh, sitting outside her new house. And then first baby marking the solidification of the marriage but the hoed giving goes on paying by instalment over a period of many years. So in the following I've tried to expand the account to make it comprehensible as while at the same time remaining true to her style of telling. So and one effect of this is that a few terms get introduced before they're explained. Prospective parents-in-law, the parents of the groom, come and visit the parents of the bride and give some palm oil. They don't ask about the girl, they just give her parents some palm oil. They return three days later with more oil. So if the parents of the bride aren't interested, they won't accept this gift. If they are interested, the prospective parents-in-law bring more oil. Then, and this is where we get into tricky uh, elisions of time, it can, this, then they come with the telep things, but this actually can take a year or more. They cut palm nuts, they make oil. They bring a big calabash of oil for the father, a small one for the mother of the bride, and two chickens, not three as they say nowadays. And then they find a person to tie the telep. He takes a spear and knots a piece of, ground, a piece of grass about it. And it's stuck in the ground in front of her house. He asks the prospective bride, do you want your husband? He asks her three times, and if she says yes, 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 then he actually ties the knot. And that's what marks the formal beginning of an engagement. Once telep has been completed, they pound camwood for use as a body paint. And that gets delivered by a friend of the husband to her house. And then the parents of the, hu the, the husband-to-be ask whether they should continue to do bride service. There's a whole sequence of breakpoints at which um, an engagement can be called off. If they are told to continue, that everyone's happy, they bring a calabash of oil and a chicken and announce that they will work with you. If they've brought two chickens, you, can, you roast them, you eat them together. Then they start doing farm work. They, ro they raise the furrows for sorghum. And then when the sorghum is ripe, they bring more gifts. This time palm oil in a, a gourd for the mother and in a pottery jar for the father. They do the farm work for the sorghum. And then when it comes to the work, um, comes to the harvest, they harvest the sorghum, and then they do the work for the cocoa yams. They bring chickens, they bring calabash, 
calabashes of oil to cook the chickens in. They harvest the cocoa yams. Then they mound up the sorghum and plant maize. This is, the, uh, in effect, a recitation of the traditional agricultural cycle. They bring yet another chicken and more palm oil. So then, the next year, before starting the sorghum, they bring two chickens and another calabash of oil. You roast the chickens not knowing how many people they will bring with them to work in your field. Will it be 10 people, 15 or 20? And after the sorghum, you cultivate, cultivate the maize. You plant the maize. You weed once, twice, and then each time you are weeding, you hold a work party and your prospective in-laws bring people. They help your work. And they bring chickens, they bring oil. And then, um, how before, yeah, right. Having talked through one year's labour, Deco then said, and that's the end of the first year, but I was still small. So she jumped from talking in the third person and generically to talking in the first person about herself. She continued to talk about subsequent years, about how they waited for the rain and then repeated the labour cycle all over again. That more gifts were given, pottery jars of oil for the father, calabashes of oil for the mother. And she noted that at this point, a groom, a prospective groom, would already be avoiding his in-laws. Mother-in-law, father-in-law avoidance, um, quite characteristically, starting from then, and easing off in its severity as a marriage matures. In the early years of marriage, a groom will not actually open his mouth, he won't utter voice, in the presence of his senior in-laws. But that doesn't last very long, assuming the marriage is stable. If a bride, a prospective bride, matured quickly, such bride's service labour would be done for about four years. If she was slow in maturing, or if the actual betrothal had happened when she was younger, then it might continue for five, six, perhaps seven years. I note that Deco did not say what was the case for herself. Once the prospective wife is grown up, has matured, then you can start having the gifts of the hose, the bride's wealth hose. If you've done bride service, you give seven hoes. If not, or if less, you give nine hoes for the father, six for the mother. You put them in separate bundles, and you say that you've come to ask for the daughter. Has she grown up yet or not? Then the prospective, um, the, the, the bride's parents go and do divination. They ask the, the divination spider whether now is the right time for her to leave. Deco noted that if a family take the hose, accept the um, gift of the bride wealth, but don't let her go, then there'll be trouble, that she'll be bitten by a snake or an axe will cut her when she's chopping wood. The Family go and do divination. They ask, is now, is now the time to go? And, but weirdly, to my mind, they also ask whether... Um, well, what she said was, they ask, will her husband beat her? Which I think is... They're asking that question too late. Um, if they're going to ask that sort of question, surely it makes sense to ask it earlier when, before arranging 
the, um, the actual betrothal. But perhaps they take the line that at that point everyone's too young, no one knows when you enter into a betrothal whether you'll actually get to the end of the betrothal process. Many people don't. And so it's too distant at that point. It makes far more sense to ask those questions just before she leaves her natal house and goes and becomes co-resident with her husband. Assuming the results of divination are positive, and if they aren't, they can postpone for some time and do some more negotiation, which might entail receiving more gifts. Assuming the divination is successful, then they tell the husband that, they, that she will be moving in with him. The husband goes and looks for two goats, as well as far more chickens. Then the wife is painted with camwood and arrives in procession with many of her kin to her new home. And then they, the in-laws receive, the bride's family receive many more gifts. They receive baskets, they receive chickens, and yet more palm oil. And these then are divided out among the family. Um, and then she has her first baby, and that's it, she's fully married. That was Deco's account. In 2002, I talked again about this to Deco and her adult daughter, Wamdie. They gave me a summary account, which is very similar to the one I've just given. They added a comment on how the system has changed, that the numbers of hoes have reduced, um, and, of course, now bride service is not very significant. They still give hoes, but the substantial bride wealth is now in the form of cash. I now want to turn to Deco talking about her children, having talked a bit about her talking about marriage. I mentioned in the first lecture the way she talked about her genealogy. I now want to consider that part of the conversation in slightly more detail. And having done that, we can then take her children's lives as ways into other aspects of Mambilla life. Their lives provide a way of grasping some of the other things that have happened to the village in the 20th century. So what I'll try and do is give you a flavour of this exchange. And the speakers are Deco and Sondwe. And this part of the conversation started when talking about the arrival of the missionaries. So Deco said, everyone entered school. My child and Dee, he entered the Catholic school. Sondwe, you say that Dee was your child? Deco, Dee that was chosen, Dee that was chosen, he was my child. Sondwe, but I didn't know, I didn't know that. Deco, he was my very first child with Konaka. But then you, ah, you didn't know. Where were you? Where, you didn't know. Where were you? Ah, that was my first child, me and Chief Konaka. I said when Chief Menandi died, I was with uh, mum, um, Well, he was about so high. He was walking. So uh, when, um, when Konaka became chief, I was pregnant with the one who was also called Menandi. The other died. I gave birth again to, to the one they named Menandi again. He who's now up there in Banyu. Uh, Sundry. That was long ago. Hoof. Deco said, hoof, hoof. Sundry. That's very good. Uh, Deco. Kung came after him. Sundry. Kung, the, the husband of Mia, here? Kung, I've seen him. When I was small. When I was small, then when I understood just a bit, I was, I only understood a bit, but I was, yeah, I, I remember him. Deco, that's how it was. It, Sondre, it was your child that I knew. 
You were together to get there at Huawei's place. And um, Deco. D was just little. And then, then I had another they called Noir. Another that they called Noir. And then, he, well, he was the same age as Ndei that died just now. Those were my children. They were five. And that's the account she gave. And as I showed you in the first lecture, what that missed out were her daughters. This, the point of giving this extract in this detail is twofold. It demonstrates the interactivity of talking about kin. The extract starts with a throwaway comment, my son and Dee, which Sondre picks up either because of his ignorance or as a useful lead for a historical researcher. And Sondre and I have been working together for a long time now and he knows the sorts of things, well, not only the sorts of things that I'm interested, he himself has got interested and has started asking people questions and writing things down for his own purposes. Um, as Deco thought about it, she realised that Sondre was too young to have known Ndee as an adult because Ndee died in a road accident in 1953, which we'll talk more about later. Um, hence, she says, where are you? Where were you? The implied answer is nowhere. So then she explains to him that Ndee was her, was her first child and that he was followed by another child called Manandi after the preceding chief who had died shortly after his birth. That's a very common practice to recycle the names of prominent people, prominent kin. When that son died, her next was given the same name. And it's that second Manandi who was then living in the city of Banyo. Now, as I've just said, she didn't mention any of her daughters. And one of those was also actually at that point living in Banyo. When she says she has five children, she was talking about the sons, including the dead sons. The other thing which I like about this exchange is the interactivity. The way that Sondre, as a local collaborator, the, a local researcher, makes his own contribution. He remembered seeing Kung. And he knew Kung when he, was, he himself was a child. Few anthropologists working outside their own community and are, are in a position to make this sort of contribution, let alone while pursuing the genealogical method. So, the conversation has all sorts of features which you wouldn't get from a recording of an anthropologist doing Rivers' genealogical method. Um, and it's particularly the editing out of the daughters, the implicit patrilaterality, perhaps, um, that that reveals that I find intriguing. Um, I started talking about marriage. Um, Deco's first husband was Konaka, of whom I shall talk more of tomorrow. For now, I'll just note that when Konaka became chief in 1929, she'd had two children, Ndi and the first Manandi, who later died. Konaka died in 1949. After this, Deco married again. Because her second husband, Yabo, was ill. They left the village and went to live in an outlying hamlet, which is a very common reaction to long-term illness. She returned to the village centre after his eventual death in 1962. 
The thing about this second marriage is that she never talks about it now. When talking to her about her life, this period vanishes. It's never mentioned. I had to dig deep even to elicit the, li the little I know of it. It's literally of little account compared to her first marriage. And that said, though, it should be remembered that by the time that she undertook this second marriage, she was already middle-aged. Um, and perhaps it's surprise, hardly surprising that there are no children from that marriage. And thereafter, she did not marry again. Now, I want to say, I'm going to kind of conclude today by talking a little bit about Deco's children. In Etienne, the her first child, born around 1923 or 4, died 1953 in a car crash, as I said. I'll talk more about the significance of him in both tomorrow and in next Tuesday's lecture. The significant thing is that he became chief after his father's death, in, and he became chief in 1950, and he was a devout Catholic. So, this plays importantly in the north-south divide, which I mentioned in the beginning of today's talk. He died in a car crash when travelling to the provincial capital um, in Ngandere as part of his campaign to shift the administrative control of the village from the north to the south. He wanted to shift the, um, this part of the Tikar plain to be included into the western province, which would have had them administered from the south. But, um, well, the plan came to naught when he died. Then Menandi, who... Um, the, the second Menandi, the one who's still alive, he has recently become the father of the new chief. He is a senior man in the village, and his life story encapsulates another aspect of what's happened to the village in the 20th century. He was the first person in the village to complete primary education. He then worked in a mine, um, 50, no, 30 miles away, and then became a um, PT teacher. He worked, he li lived, he taught in a school in Garoa, in the north of Cameroon, for many years, and was very rarely in the village. Then he was transferred to Banyo, and in fact, has returned to the village on retirement. Again, a classic career path. Being a successful member of the elite, and as many of the elite has done, he built a house back in the village. In fact, it was the first cement block house to be built in the village, done while he was still living in Garoa. And he, the, the act of building his house was a gesture, if you like, of his enduring commitment to the village as well as being a very prominent bit of conspicuous consumption. He could afford to build in cement. He could afford to have glass windows. And, of course, he's now reaping the benefits of this. Then... I should say something about Bengam, who, the younger daughter, she moved to, to Banyo, married a Fulbe, and converted to Islam. She had one daughter who died, who had left off, and she returned sick to the village in 
the late 1990s and ended up being nursed by her mother, Dico, until her, her eventual death in May after a long illness. Cuomdier Marguerite, who I've already mentioned and who is one of the people who talked on some of the, participated in some of the conversations which I've been discussing, she stayed in the village. She's had two marriages, one long and fruitful, the other shorter and bearing, resulting in only one daughter. And she now lives next door to her mother and is sort of taking on her mantle as being, what should I say, one of the, the um, holders of the village archive because she's been hearing all the stories for all these years. She's also prominent in the Protestant church, like her mother, and has some of the medicines that does some of the rituals which her mother's her mother has taught her um, again. So I'll talk more about the the coexistence of the the Protestant Church and ritual practice in next Tuesday's lecture. Finally, then, it's a to kind of sum up, it's a truism of anthropology that marriage organises political and economic relations. And as we've seen, this is true of Mambilla as of others in the region, as described by Faden, for many to the north and the west, for, and by Anno and Gose for their neighbours to the um, south and east. In tomorrow's lecture, I'll continue to look at the chiefship, the political organisation into which Dico married, or rather, since there is no automatic succession to the chiefship, I should say, into which she found she had married when her first husband, Kanaka, became chief in the late 1920s. So for now, thank you very much.